Happy Sunday, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in for another episode from the Isle of Dr. Garneau. I'm Kelly J. Lewis, and with me from the Isle of Dr. Garneau is Dr. Chris Garneau. How are you doing, Dr. Garneau? Hey, doing pretty good. Just hanging out here in Norman. Um, so here's here's what I was thinking about talking to talking about today. Last week, we just kind of got into the presidential election at the very end because there's so much going on. So I kind of want to start with that this week, and then we'll get into the the events of what's been going on. And every week is nuts, uh, and this week's so different. Um, so the, the one thing I did want to bring up because I've been seeing a lot of this. Uh, around on social media, uh, is we now have a presumptive Democratic nominee in Joe Biden. Uh, Bernie Sanders now came out and has supported Joe Biden. Um, and there has been some fear in the Democratic Party that some of the most ardent Bernie supporters would not vote for Joe Biden. Um, they've been, you know, retweeting um, a, a tweet that Bernie had made a long time ago saying voters need to make up their own minds. And that's kind of what they're saying is, a lot of them uh, don't or, or are making a basically making a line in the sand saying, I can't, you know, I can't vote for Biden. I, you know, Bernie is the only candidate I'm interested in. In other words, a lot of the Bernie voters were not blue, no matter who voters. They were definitely much more interested in a candidate that was outside of the party structure. And then to add to that, you do have Democrats who may have been blue, no matter who, but for those of you who haven't been catching up with the news because, uh, you know, the, the pandemic has been and the president has been eating up so much bandwidth, um, the former vice president is facing allegations of sexual abuse. And for a lot of um, for a lot of Democrats, that's kind of a, a line in the sand that they're making. So it, it'll be interesting to see how all this pans out. But I, I thought I'd, I'd get your opinion on this or, or see if you've heard anything from the people that you're next network with, Kelly. For myself, I am one of those disgruntled Bernie voters who just say, I cannot vote for creepy Joe Biden. I, I, I can't. And and that's part of it is because he is so creepy. Um, he wasn't, I mean, as effective as a vice president could be, I think that he was probably average. Uh, but no, I he does not represent me. He doesn't, and and as an as a survivor, I have a really hard time putting my support behind someone like that. I mean, whether the allegations are true or not, um, it's it's just really hard because you don't know what people will do when they get that power. And someone who has wrongly used that power and abused it before, and turned it toward women and abuse them like that. I just, it's really difficult for me to support him. And and it's not even just an accusation of assault or even workplace impropriety. We've seen him be inappropriate right in front of us, right on the campaign trail over and over and over again. He's not doing that to men. And let me ask you this too. Like, so that's, that's, probably the biggest fire that he's under right now. I also, there's also, and I haven't made up my mind on this yet, or I guess I don't know how to weigh in on this. There's also the, the issue of, you know, fit for office, um, in, in fit for office in terms of his background and these allegations, but also it, 
he he really is different. It, well, I shouldn't maybe make that statement so definitively, but a lot of the you know the media coverage says that that mentally he he is different than four years ago. I think that's giving Democrats some pause as well. Um, because, and this, this has to do with not just the Democratic Party, but if you're trying to get moderates to vote for you, they talk about, you know, the suburban women that went for Trump last time, if they're going to move over to Biden. Um, he's, he's not the candidate that Obama was, you know, because a lot, in a lot of cases they're trying to, I think the Biden campaign is trying to make the, the pitch that he is, he was Obama's pick. He, he'll be a third term of Obama. And I, I think his campaign is really struggling. to pick up a lot of momentum. Part of it is the pandemic, but you know, the other part of it is he's, he's just got a lot stacked against him right now. And I don't think he's as appealing of it, of a candidate. Uh, just, I mean, just think about this, Kelly, what, what, what blows me away. We had 24, 25, maybe even more democratic candidates at one point. And the one that ends up emerging from the top of the heap in some cases is maybe the most vulnerable to run against the president who should be in some ways a lot easy to beat with what's going on with his handling of the pandemic. I do have, I do have those concerns. And I think that Joe Biden, if Joe Biden wants my vote and he wants to sway a lot of moderate and progressive voters, I consider myself a progressive. He's going to have to pick Bernie Sanders. He's going to have to pick Elizabeth Warren. He's going to have to, anybody, anybody other than those two, he's not going to get the progressives and the, and those suburban housewives. They have more of an appeal to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren than Joe Biden. But I would feel okay voting for Joe Biden if I knew that he got senile in the next couple of years and had Sanders or Warren at the helm. I'd be okay with that. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of the same things from other progressives, too. They kind of say, you know, like, that would be an olive branch to the the left because, you know, the right splintered maybe a few years before. I, I should say the, the Republican Party splintered a few years prior, and I think that was during the Obama years that really brought out the Tea Party wing versus the old, you know, George Bush, Ronald Reagan GOP wing. And I think we're seeing the same thing with the Democratic Party right now, and that the the new age progressives, and I think the new age and the and the older progressives are almost kind of merging now. Like you get the old, the, you know, the older hippies, the anti-Vietnam crowd, uh, kind of merging with a lot of the younger folks against you know the moderate Democrats or the blue dog Democrats, whatever you want to call them, the ones that have been moving, the ones that essentially look like what the Republicans did 20 years ago. Well, I think that we're seeing as new generations are cropping up that that left wing fringe that they called the fringe is no longer a fringe. It's a major component of the Democratic Party. And I think you're right. I think Joe Biden would do well by picking um, picking first off a, a woman, which he said he would as a as a vice president candidate, um, but someone who is fairly progressive, because this is the other thing that I hear from progressives is that it's, it, it, you know, it's it's Joe Biden, and maybe you're not excited about Biden, but you could check the Biden box if you're considering that Roe v. Wade might be on the ballot, or Ruth Bader Ginsburg's replacement might be on the ballot, or you know dozens of federal judges that are making decisions across the United States that affect people's lives. So 
those things are important, but I think for Joe, it, it's an idea for giving some confession, providing some kind of, uh, some basically like an acknowledgement that, that that left wing is out there right now. I think that's an excellent point because for so many years, progressives like myself have really been considered the, the fringe and all that that entails that over the top, um, like you say, hippie, you know, that, that kind of mentality where it's been easier to push aside because there wasn't that many of us that were willing to speak up. Now it's getting to the point where even the most docile of progressives are starting to find their voices and say, Hey, we, we, we're not cool with this and something's got to be done now. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, one of the things that Bernie has done, if, if nothing else, and, and I think he's done a lot more than this, but he has in some ways made it visible, made this wing of the country visible and not just kind of this fringy element because he's been a major institution in the United States Senate and he's taken very seriously. He has a lot of respect. He has the respect of his colleagues and coworkers. And um, now that he's run for president twice and had a pretty successful I know he didn't get the nomination either time, but pretty damn successful for a guy that calls himself socialist in such an anti-socialist kind of country. It is kind of inspiring. So anyways, I, I just wanted to, to touch on the, the presidential election so we don't forget that there is one coming up in November. And, oh, God, I don't know what's going to happen if, if we're in shutdown mode or what, what, what's going to happen. But that brings me to the next point. And we got to talk about the pandemic a little bit. Um, things are I, I feel like we're on a weird tilt right now in the country. And I don't know what's going on. I bring up November because they said that this pandemic, like most most viruses that are similar to this, like the flu, but I, I think the common cold is a derivative of a coronavirus. I mean, all it, it's, you know, COVID-19 is a particular kind of coronavirus. Um, but what we're expecting is over the summer, the virus is going to be harder to transmit, just like the flu. But the 1918 pandemic flu it was. It happened just like that. It got much better over the summer, and then it came back and hit harder in the fall. So as of right now, we have um, some unrest going on in specific uh, specific states. Uh, Michigan was in the headlines the other day as there was an angry mob of MAGA hat wearers who were, you know, rallying around the Capitol, basically telling the Democratic governor that Donald Trump refers to as that woman uh, that they wanted to go back to. I don't even think most of them were working age. I think they just want to go back to the Waffle House, or they want to go eat a Golden Corral again, or Buffalo Wild Wings. You know what I mean? It's a, but there is this unrest that's going on. Yeah, it's called white privilege boredom. <laughs> yeah, they, they they want to go they want to go back to their buffet lines. But here's the thing: most of those people, I think, or a lot of the people, they they want things to open, not so they can go back to work. I think they want things to open so they can go shopping again. I mean, it's crazy. Okay, I have to tell you this. As a sociologist, you will get a kick out of this. And and we've talked about this um, in studio and uh, on our other shows and maybe on this one too, about uh, the small business owners here in Chickasha and how a lot of the boutiques just open whenever, right? But they were open during the pandemic until the Chickasha mayor had to tell all these people, this isn't, you got to shut down kind of thing. And so yesterday they put this thing out on social media where 
um, three of the boutique owners, three boss babes, one t-shirt, one mission kind of thing. Yes. Community over competition. I'm mm. not being facetious. That's what it said. Wow. Um, but their pitch to get people to pre-order these shirts and come in and shop is we know your stimulus checks are starting to hit the bank. That I think that's why a lot of people, I mean, it's, it's just like Indian per cap. You know, some of these tribes get per cap and it might come yeah. in December and right in time for Christmas and then your per cap is spent. And yeah, so well, this is $1,200. And while that'll help with a month of bills, it may not cover everything. And no. is it really our place as business owners, even small business owners who are drowning right now? Should we really be encouraging equally needy community colleagues to spend their stimulus money in our shops? Well, this is okay. So this is all a mess because number one should point out that $350 million that was allocated or billion, uh, billion that was allocated for small businesses has apparently run out. So that wasn't enough. Um, and small businesses are floundering right now. The second part of it is, our economy is driven off consumer spending. 70% of our economy is people spending money. You're right. That 1200 bucks for people who are now unemployed and the unemployment numbers are insane. We have now lost every single job that has been accumulated since the Great Recession that all got wiped out in a month's time to show you how fragile we are. Um, but that 1200 bucks, that that's a really important point. Um, I think, this is my perspective, if people are floundering and they have 1200 bucks, they're going to do two things first. They're going to make sure they can eat, and they're going to make sure they, can, they have their prescriptions. And after that, they're not going to pay their rent, they, and they're sure as hell not going to go shopping um, on frivolous things. Like, no one's shopping for a new TV right now. Like, I don't know anyone who's, like, really excited or in the market for a new TV, you know, unless you don't have one and you're, you're, you're bored and, and you already have a job. But the point is, for those people who are struggling, you're right. That 1200 bucks doesn't cover the basics. There are people right now who aren't paying their loans back, who aren't paying the credit card bills, and who aren't paying uh, their their mortgage slash rent because you're not going to starve in order to pay these other people their things. So the idea, if and if this is the idea of some of the governors who want to open up right now, we got your stimulus money in because it kind of lines up with the stimulus money. We're going to open up for business in terms of you know some of these states. Texas is talking about it right now. Some other states are talking about it because we need to get the economy going. I don't necessarily know, even if people want to get back out doing things again, I don't necessarily know that that, that that consumers have the available capital to be able to actually get the economy going. I don't think we're there yet. Well, and especially when you consider the unemployment rate is so high, so many people haven't been working, it's not like you're going to go out. I mean, you still have to, what, two, three weeks before that first paycheck's going to kick in. It's like everybody's a brand new employee. You're, you're good. Yeah. The businesses are going to have to make that money before they can pay their employees. And, and that's, that's the other issue too, with the, the small business stimulus um, running out as quickly as it did. I don't know where they came up with the $350 billion, uh, but it wasn't enough. Really. Congress is going to have to go back and do something else. Um, there are Democrats in Congress right now who are suggesting and uh, they're suggesting a second stimulus package that are going to, and the second stimulus package will not put any focus on corporations. It's going to be purely small business loans 
And this is the kicker. I like this idea. I think it's great. $2,000 a month uh, until, <laughs> until the pandemic is over to Americans. I think that's a great idea uh, to households anyway, $2,000 a month. Again, it won't cover bills for people who live in California and New York, but that is more of a sustainable idea than a one-time $1,200 check. Because Kelly, I honestly don't know what they think Americans live on. Maybe people in Congress have no clue, but $1,200 to sustain us through all of this is not going to be enough. What's crazy to me is Trump forced Mnuchin to uh, put his name on the checks. Oh, I saw that the other day. I'm like, that is like, that is so narcissistic. I couldn't believe it. And now it's going to delay the check. That's the other thing for people who have to get paper checks, don't have a bank account that can be deposited into. They have to wait several days in order to get their stimulus. And I've heard people have started to get their stimulus in. I need to check on that because I haven't seen anything in my bank account. And that was another problem too, which is that I guess the stimulus money has been coming in in bits and pieces. And some people are getting their the money transfer, and some people haven't. And the federal government doesn't really know why. And so, yeah, I mean, they're 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 fumbling a lot that's going on at this. But I I did want to bring up one uh, one other point, um, and that has to do with the reopening. Um, so I, I I heard Stitt's press conference yesterday, or was it yesterday or the day before? Uh, so here in Oklahoma, the the chatter is we're going to open up. We just don't know exactly sure, like. Uh, vulnerable populations, the elderly would be after that. So one of the dates that was floated out there was the end of uh, basically like May 1st, we can kind of start opening some non-essential business. Maybe, uh, you know, a week later, we can start thinking about, you know, loosening up for people who are more vulnerable. So that's kind of what we're talking about here in Oklahoma. Um, in other states, uh, they're talking about locking down more and specifically states that have Democratic governors are a little bit more weary. So Trump this morning, apparently, I just saw this news story, was watching Fox News or Fox and Friends or something. And on there, they were talking about, you know, we need to liberate these states. And they brought up Minnesota, Michigan, and Virginia, three states that have Democratic governors. And so Trump retweets this ridiculous, it was like, liberate Minnesota, liberate Michigan. And it was, and then he wrote something about your second rights amendments are under attack. This guy could not be more divisive. I mean, it's ridiculous. So, it, and he's been playing this game this week, which is, I take no responsibility, but I'm going to tell the states what to do. And they, you know, so basically he's telling, telling his followers that live in these states, I'm going to liberate you from the oppression of these Democratic governors. And he's been playing this weird thing this week where he's kind of, he, he's been flaunting the idea that he's this little dictator that can tell governors what to do. And it's it's really weird. This is the first time, you know, if you've taken a, a civics class or a poli sci class, where it's been on full display, th this weird tension between the federal government and state governments, because a pandemic doesn't, you know, we talked about this before, it doesn't respect state borders. And so we're now seeing the president getting impatient and sort of having these little temper tantrums where he wants things to open up again and he can't get governors on his side. Well, and that's a very dangerous thing, too. I mean, liberate. So does, so does that imply they need to have a coup? Is that what they were doing in Michigan is starting the coup? If you wanted to take it that I think, you know, we talk about this president and dog whistles in some ways. Like, why would you bring up the Second Amendment? I don't get that. That's not what this is about. 
So when he says that, it's just, to me, it's really irresponsible. Well, and let's look at it from his relationship with these governors in these 15 states that are least affected by COVID-19. And we've been talking about this all week on all of the shows about Oklahoma reopening, uh, being one of those 15 states. And, you know, we talk about Stitt and Trump being business-minded rather than political and community-minded. And, you know, the, the bigger states saw their pandemic start in their nursing homes. We're starting to see that here in southwest Oklahoma. The little town of Binger, Oklahoma, home of Johnny Bench, by the way, uh, their nursing home has had so many positive tests, plus their employees. Um, Mangum, the town of Mangum, 30 of their 48 residents have it. And when you consider there might be 200 residents in the whole town of Mangum, that's still a lot. And so we're seeing this increase in southwest Oklahoma where we have the least amount of testing, the least amount of access to health departments, health care, PPE, all of it. I mean, this is one of the worst areas, the southwest Oklahoma quadrant. One of the most unprepared and ill-equipped. And that is starting in these little towns. These families go there to visit them. None of these families generally don't live there, you know. And so they're, we don't know the, the scope of this. We don't know how long it's been because we don't know how long they've been tested. We don't know how long anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are so many variables that we just don't know. And it's part of it, too. And, and you bring up the tests, And this is something that we've been hammering on for quite a while is if you do loosen up restrictions. And Fauci even talked about this. Look, if you're going to loosen up the restrictions and things are looking better so they're, they're you know, Initially, they were talking about 200,000 deaths, maybe um, nationwide, and they've, they've dropped out below 100,000 now, um, which is great. But here's the thing. We still can't open things up. Like, that's, that's with social distancing. If we maintain what we've been doing, they're calling for about 60,000 deaths. But if, here's the thing. Without testing, you really can't, unless you have comprehensive testing, you really can't let off the gas. And the reason is, is we don't know who's infected because you can be a carrier asymptomatically. And a lot of people, uh, we think, have already had it. And that's the other thing. We need the antibody test to be available because once we know, first off, who has it, we can put them in quarantine. And once we know who has already had it, well, those people can go back to work because we, we're just going to assume, and, and the vast majority do have, do have immunity, they can go back to life as normal. Um, and not only that, they can help take care of other people who might be sick because they can't get it. Um, and not only that, they can donate plasma, which is, has been shown as an effective treatment um, for people who are currently experiencing it. So, but none of that happens unless we get tests. And the last data that I've shown is that Oklahoma is still towards the bottom of the country per capita in terms of tests. So I don't, here's my question as a resident in the state, it, it, I'm, I don't have to go back to work. I can work from home. I'll be damned if I'm, in, I'm not taking my kids out until I know enough people have been tested. Like, I'm not going to do that. Like, I, and, and so, you know, and, but I have that option. A lot of people don't. If, if they're called to go back to work, 
and, you know, and they're afraid or they have a, a, a sick family member at home or uh, an elderly family member at home, it's kind of a, it's kind of a scary, scary deal to just set a date and say, well, our economy is suffering, so we need to get back to work when we don't really know what's going to happen. Because the, the, the other thing about this is that the curve, when we talk about the death rate increasing or the death rate decreasing, it, we had to social distance for a while before we started to see that curve going down. Like there's a lag to it. So let's say we open up tomorrow, whatever, you know, or May 1st, and we get non-essential workers back to work and the economy starts getting back to normal or, you know, people are out going to bars and restaurants, going to bowling alleys, you know, swimming pools are going to be opening soon. We're doing all the things that we normally did. And two weeks later, we're like, hey, look, you know, the, the deaths haven't been, haven't been any more. We haven't seen any more cases. We're past this. Well, what could happen is we see a drastic spike that kicks in, you know, in a two to three week lag. And, and that's really my concern, which is we won't know we're out of the woods until we give it several weeks. So we have to be very strategic. But more than that, we have to have some kind of testing done. And honestly, Kelly, that, that's probably what worries me most of all is, is if we let off the gas too quickly, we, we, it'll be too late by the time, you know, the curve kicks up because we won't be able to stop it at that point. Well, and I feel like that too. And I think that's what really scares me is because the most affected communities are going to be the lower income communities and the minority communities, mostly here in Southwest Oklahoma, Indian communities. Indian Health Service yeah, is not the, equipped for this either. And so you know, how and the, are we going to know? And the news has been talking about that, that there is, you know, racial disparity in um, mortality risk between, and, and they focus on white and black mortality risk, and that's real. And, and we've seen that over and over again. Most of that has to do with the fact that African-Americans nationwide tend to live in communities with subpar health, uh, well, I guess we'd say uh, hospitals and, and, and generally uh, have less access, generally have um, health care that isn't as good. So, I mean, and, and you can speak to that within, you know, within the American Indian communities here in Oklahoma, they possibly could be facing some of the same kinds of socio socioeconomic hurdles that, again, like, as you say, creates a disproportionate risk for minority populations and poor populations compared to uh, the white middle class in Oklahoma. Well, and I think, too, when you consider a lot of our minority families here in Oklahoma are multi-generational, you might have three or four generations of a family living under one roof. And I think we're also going to start seeing the, I'm doing my air bunnies, the essential employees and the non-essential employees. I think that we're going to start seeing this thing where well, I'm not comfortable to go back to work. I have an elderly person in my home or I have a small child or X, Y, Z. So I'm not comfortable in going back to work. But other people who may not have that or, you know, may not have any kind of restrictions or may not be as concerned about it may jump at the chance and take that job, the essential job right. and leave the other person out. That's what I kind of see is going to come with all of this really high unemployment rate. What do you think about that in the last couple of minutes that we have? Yeah, no, that's true. It's going to, it's going to sow uh, competition. And I think this also becomes a problem when you have regions or states that are opening up at different times, because for people who are struggling, they may see a neighboring state. If, let's say 
you're on the border of Oklahoma and Texas opens up before Oklahoma does, there's a huge incentive to drive across the border and, and pick up a job and go to work every day. And now you've got people who are now traveling between states. And so that adds risk to it because there's pressure for people to go back to work to take, and, and you're going to have people competing for jobs, essential, like you said, essential versus non-essential. So that's uh, another issue that we're looking at. So what I'm going to be looking at in, in the weeks ahead, and I guess in, in the week ahead until we, we talk next time, is where are the numbers going? Are we continuing to downtrend? And just listen to the rhetoric. I, I, you know, if, if anybody is a doctor, like I'm Dr. Garneau, if anybody calls themselves Dr. Bob, Dr. Jim, uh, doctor, you know, Dr. Whatever. Phil, uh, Dr. Phil, don't listen to him. Uh, so there's one doctor I'll, I'll give that I'm going to throw him, even though he's not using his first name, Dr. Oz, I, I generally don't listen to him much, but, um, he, he, he did have this interesting thing. He said, let's get kids back in school. Cause if only two to 3% of kids are dying, that's kind of a, a low risk. And I thought, what are you saying? You're talking about school children. So you know, there, this idea that this trade-off of life for profit, it's going to start ramping up in the next week. And so I think uh, we're, we're going to have plenty to talk about by the time we get back next, uh, uh, next weekend. It's interesting to see that the people who are actually spewing that rhetoric have kids that wouldn't be in danger of that. Their, their kids aren't going to be a part of that 1% or 2% that are dying. Their kids are going to have the appropriate medical care so interesting thanks so much for tuning in don't forget if you miss any of our past episodes of the isle of dr garno you can catch up with those wherever you get your podcast be sure to tune in every sunday at straight up 1 p.m central for a brand new episode i'm kelly j lewis with dr chris garno have a great day everyone <laughs>